Alright, let's bar this. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this incredible privilege of gathering together as family on a morning that you've ordained from eternity past with a message given to us by grace to set us free, to deliver us from any of the bondage we might be still stuck in. Father, thank you for always setting us free with truth. Thank you for giving us the faculties to be able to recognize and embrace said truth. Father, we're just so very grateful for your unerring love, which is expressed through grace and mercy. We do pray for those that can't be with us this morning for a variety of reasons, and we pray also for those that are still lost. We're so very grateful for all the work that the Son you sent, our Lord and Savior, did on the cross to cancel out that debt and to make a morning like this a reality for all of us to enjoy, to fellowship in. We just ask for your blessings on this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, the deceitfulness of sin... Um, there's a lot of work always in summarizing a series that is of such great length. I mean, this is part 59 of a series. An awful lot come from this pulpit. And then as we noted this past week, we got a wonderfully placed series called God's Love for Orphans. Um, here was a summary principle from that series, and if you didn't catch it, you should, helping the helpless. As an extension of Jesus, we reach out to spiritual orphans and literal orphans. Both of those cases, of course, are in the Bible. Both are noble activities because they involve helping the helpless, the very thing God loves to do. Helping the helpless, the very thing God loves to do. One of the opening principles from that series was that God especially cares for the needy. Now that's going to be our pivot point this morning. God especially cares for the needy. And this has everything to do with the deceitfulness of sin. Because we can be confused and lied to about how God approaches even needs. There's a subtlety here worth mentioning regarding the needy then. I'll broach it with a question. Have you ever met anyone who doesn't know they have needs? I mean, obviously that's an obvious question. Have you met, ever met anyone who doesn't know they have certain needs or... And a more advanced case is maybe too proud or arrogant to admit their needs. Ever met anyone like that? <laughs> I have. Most of the time I give someone the gospel nowadays. That's precisely what I mean. And so we have this wonderful statement that we learned about this past week that God cares for and looks after the needy. But then also in the Bible, as a balance statement, 
we have this idea of, well, what about what said person thinks about needs? Because they don't operate independently. God's will is always there, but He never overruns the free will of man. He's given it to Him. The Bible says that God is opposed to the proud. But yet we all just admitted that we've met people that in many ways are too proud or arrogant to admit they have needs. So we have this, on one side, this impetus to help, but on another side, uh, a certain integrity to free will. And so the Bible says that God is opposed to the proud. So we may conclude that a needy person that just so happens to be arrogant may ultimately thwart God's grace. Hmm. A needy person that is also arrogant may ultimately thwart God's grace. The Bible describes God helping those who understand their own needs. And you can start thinking about salvation even. But salvation in every sense of the word is also in view. But, of course, salvation proper is in view. So the Bible describes God helping those who understand their own needs. This is not to say that God won't help the ignorant learn about their needs. That's a different proposition altogether. It's not to say that God won't help the ignorant, because He does. There's a big difference between ignorance, though, and arrogance. Let me explain. I've heard multiple people uh, over the course of my own life describe their childhood as follows. I never knew we were poor until I ventured outside of my own neighborhood. And yet, so many others growing up understood all too well how very poor they were. Both were poor, but some seemed to know it, and some didn't. So you got this mixed bag. In both categories of people, some accepted help with gratitude, and some didn't, out of pride and arrogance. I think that's an interesting way to think about man's depravity. Some have a full knowledge of it and immediately seek help and deliverance. For example, go to Luke 18.13. Luke 18.13. So it's true. Some Some know they're poor and broke and needy spiritually. Some know they're orphans and would love to understand the way of adoption. Case in point, Luke 18.13. We see a contrast here, but we finish with the point I'm making. Luke 18.13, but the tax collector 
standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God be merciful to me, the sinner. That's a person who understands their depravity, their brokenness, how poor they are. And where do they turn? To the only one that can deliver them. That's a beautiful thing. So in other words, God is willing to look at this person because there's humility. His desire to love orphans never changes. His desire to save never changes. He became a man and sought to save those which were lost. That's never changed. But then there's this other side, the condition of man's free will. And here we have a humble person that meets with God's grace. So, in verse 14, it reads, I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. And the other being the arrogant one. We didn't read that, but that's preceding it. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Again, some have a full knowledge of their depravity, their, how poor they are, if you would, their need, and immediately seek help and deliverance. While others are ignorant of how very poor they are and need a real impetus to drive them to repentance before being saved. Case in point, go to Revelation 3.16. Revelation 3.16. So what the Spirit is saying is everyone has this need, but some don't recognize it, or in their arrogance, some won't accept it. And so there's a difference. Revelation 3.16. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. That's strong language. But that's how the holy God of the universe feels about the subject. Because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich and have become wealthy. See, that's the antithesis of poor, isn't it? I have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor. And blind and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich. Side note here, this ministry has been focused a lot the past couple years on this second case, just so you know. Just so you know, this ministry has been focused a lot on this second case. And as suspected, the flesh of those still stuck has reared up, even from within our church, I've seen it even from within our church. These are the subtle areas that Satan and his agents skulk around in because they are easily overlooked. But we must, at all costs, stay true to God's heart on the matters of humility and arrogance in times of need. 
in times of need. In other words, when the need is made known, there are some that are ignorant and they just need to understand better what the need is. But it's at that moment when a need is recognized where humility or arrogance meets with it. So we're stepping back now. Why do I bring up these scenarios on the coattails of our series, God's Love for Orphans? Simply put, it's because the orphans are what we would call, theologically, types for unbelievers in the Bible. Unbelievers. They represent, in other words, unbelievers in the Bible. As Scott taught this past week, we are like orphans before we are adopted into God's family. So consider the following. If on the day an adoptive family shows up to adopt an orphan, and that orphan runs away, well, the adoption never proceeds. No child, no adoption, right? The kid says, I don't want to be adopted. I don't even think I need to be adopted. I'm good. If that orphan decides that they don't need to be adopted, even though those who know better disagree, then by their own free will, they may avoid the proceedings. This is akin to a person who decides they don't need to be adopted by the holy God of the universe, their creator. It's the same thing. doesn't change God's will for them one iota. But they can essentially stop the proceedings. What's the, what's the point the Spirit's making here? Since the orphans represent unbelievers and unbelievers are blind by nature, part of our job as evangelists is to reveal, through sharing the word, what the Bible has to say about their depravity, if they don't already accept it about themselves. They need to understand their need. That's where we might come in, where we might play a role. But if there's one thing I've ever learned after the years I've spent studying the Bible and going out and trying to give people the truth, I can't change anyone's mind. I can only give them the truth and say, this is what the Bible has to say. This is what your Creator has to say about your needs. What you do with that after the fact, that's between you and the Lord. But I cannot browbeat you. I cannot try to convince you. I cannot beat you into submission. Because that's not how humility works. That would actually be me becoming a stumbling block to a person. Because now there's an angst or maybe uh, an anger between us. And I represent Christ. There might be an anger now between us that becomes a problem. You see. And that we should never become because we're misrepresenting our Lord. Each individual on this earth must accept and be accountable to their own needs. We can never convince them of such things. That's the Spirit's job, ultimately. We know this from Holy Scripture. 1 Thessalonians 4.8 reads, up here on the board, So, 
He who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. You might tell someone, you, you, you need a Savior. You are born depraved. God is holy, you are not. And they may say, get away from me. I don't, I don't have any needs. You see, I'm, I'm wealthy. I have no needs. Mind you, the church of Laodicea, right? The lukewarm. I, I don't have any needs. And they could be, some of these people could be calling themselves Christians. Which is the craziest thing. But we need to understand this very fact on the board. That it's not our job. That ultimately it's not us that is being rejected. Thank God for that. Thank God for that because I would be a broken, broken individual. Because I get rejected way more and attacked way more than I don't get these things. And let me tell you something. Eight times out of ten, it's from other so-called Christians. The point the Spirit's making here is simple. Up here on the board. Need must be recognized. It's wonderful. What Scott taught is a magnificent series. Wonderful, edifying, lovely, beautiful to know that God wants children in his home. <laughs> that he wants, that he shows up to the orphanage daily to adopt children. But if the children run away and say, I don't want to be adopted, and say, no, thank you, choose the next kid. Okay, then. So the need must be recognized. God gives man the ability to choose to believe in Jesus for his salvation or not. The first great question to be answered is, do I really need a Savior? Do I have this need? The impetus for answering rightly is in understanding and acceptance of his own need. And that has everything to do with James 4, 6. That we'll see in a moment. Again, God gives us this ability. He says he does, and he does. And so the question on the table is, do I really need a Savior? The amazing thing about God is that his expressed grace is predicated on a certain humility in man. God, the amazing thing about him is that his expressed grace is predicated on a certain humility in man. In other words, as I've been saying for years now, humility is the key to the spiritual life. You don't go anywhere. You get stuck. I didn't teach that. That's not me. I mean, I've taught it. But that's not, those are, that's not my doctrine. That's from the Bible. Do you understand? That's biblical. When God says he is opposed to the proud, he's opposed to the proud. When he says I give grace to the humble, then I give grace to the humble. Do you see what the predicate is? Do you see what enacts grace, giving? Humility. James 4, 6. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore it says God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And by the way, why do you think it's in caps? You know what that is? It means it's Old Testament. 
It means there's no new grace in this world. If you've got that in your soul, throw it the hell out. Throw it into the pit of hell. There is no new grace. God has always been grace and love. Old Testament, New Testament, always the same. Jesus Christ has always been the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen? So stop listening to people that say there's another gospel. There's the gospel of grace, and then there's the gospel of the Old Testament. There's the grace of the New Testament and the grace of the Old Testament. There's only one God. That's why it's called unity. One God. Amen. That's it. Why do we complicate it? Arrogance. Satan is an incredible liar. An incredible deceiver. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Same grace. Just like an adoptive parent takes in a new child and showers them with love and affection. Can't you just see the scene? They go into an orphanage. They adopt a child. Do they take them in and then throw them on the street? Wouldn't that defeat the whole purpose of an adoption? No. Why would someone want to adopt a child? To show them love and affection, to take care of them, to raise them up. So it makes sense that our Father in Heaven certainly desires to shower us with His love, affection, as expressions of grace, doesn't it? Yeah. But again, humility is the necessary precursor. This is King David's great example. Humility. We've learned this time and time again. Go to Psalm 40, verse 16. Psalm 40, verse 16, where we see King David speaking. Remember, King David is described as a man after God's own heart. Whenever I think of humility, I, I think of David. Because you know what? He screwed up royally, not, no pun intended, right? Because he was a king. But you know what? He was humble. Psalm 40, verse 16. Let all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. Let those who love your salvation say continually, the Lord be magnified. Now check this out. Since I am afflicted and needy. Since I am afflicted and needy. Let the Lord be mindful of me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. So what do you see here with David's words? Well, specific to this morning's message you see a man who is humble enough to accept that he is afflicted and needy. He says, I am afflicted and needy. Isn't that a wonderful meeting place with God? Who wants to satisfy our needs? Who wants to provide for our needs? Of course it is. That's exactly what he's looking for. A self-realization, an acceptance of who we are, what our needs are, the fact that we are needy, which is antithetical to what we just read in Revelation 3 with the lukewarm 
And what did God say about the lukewarm believer? I spit you out. Because you think you don't need me. You think you don't need all of me. You think you just need part of me, you see. You might call on me from time to time when you think you have needs. But I'm telling you, your entire life is just basically needs. Which means your entire life is meant to be satisfied and sustained by my grace. Everything. Everything. So this is all great and wonderful. What could possibly thwart all of this? I mean, does God choose to shower every man and woman on this earth with every form of grace in the Bible? You might be surprised how many people teach that. But that's a whole other issue at this point. But is it fair, based on Holy Scripture... Is it fair to say that God showers every man and woman on this earth with every form of grace? Of course not. Otherwise, the likes of James 4.6 would be lies. But yet, there is a liar in this world who is called the father of lies, that is the God of this world who leads the sons of disobedience and so on. And his title is Satan, the deceiver. Go to Revelation 12, verse 9. Revelation 12, verse 9. One of the great, if you want to call it a victory, one of the great accomplishments of Satan, especially in Christian churches nowadays, is the perversion of grace. Is the perversion of grace. And he has done such an unbelievably masterful job of it. He's got even what I would consider well-intentioned pastors confused about grace. Revelation 12.9, but this is what we know about this individual fallen angel, and the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world, who deceives the whole world. And just so you know, just as, how about this, as a little side study, what do you see there? Deceives who? The whole world. Huh. I want you to compare that to John 3.16 when you go home. And you need to reconcile that. What is meant in context when the whole world is mentioned. Okay? Food for thought. Totally unrelated. But a little pearl for those of you who like to do a little digging on your own. Compare that scripture, specifically the whole world, with John 3.16 and reconcile them, and see what you come up with. I'll give you a hint. The world doesn't always mean everyone. That's your hint, and that's all I'm going to say. The serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down 
with him. So we have a pretty solid description of the character of this angel, Satan. The truth is quite simple, you see. God does not choose to shower every man and woman on this earth with every form of grace. Yet, there is a type of common grace, this is fair to say, there is a, what if you want to call it common grace, you can call it whatever you want. A lot of theologians call it this, not everyone. But there's a type of, let's call it a common grace, a grace that is common to everyone. That includes the convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit for the sake of understanding the gospel. So I'm not throwing that out. Let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. But even that, if you think about that for even a moment, even that cannot consummate for salvation's sake in the absence of humble repentance. Even that can't consummate in the absence of humble repentance. God the Holy Spirit promises to convict everyone. Otherwise, he would, God would be unjust in throwing anyone in the lake of fire. So we know at some point in someone's life, they all get convicted of the gospel truth. Some go to heaven, some go to hell. What's the difference? Humility. There you go. God gives grace to who? The humble. What's more gracious than, than saving faith, than receiving the gift of saving faith, than that gavel coming down and saying, you're good. What's more gracious than that? <laughs> so even, even that common type of grace cannot consummate for the sake of salvation in the absence of humble repentance. That's the whole reason why some are saved and some aren't. We know that God's will is for everyone to be saved, right? So something makes a difference. Yeah. It's called the person who can choose. And so even this so-called common grace cannot consummate for salvation's sake in the absence of humble repentance. The great deceiver, Satan himself, lies even about holy doctrines such as this one. Of course, it makes sense. In particular, in order to undermine the gospel message about Jesus Christ, our Savior. And just to backpedal here again, up here on the board, need must be recognized. God gives man the ability to choose to believe in Jesus for his salvation or not. The first great question to be answered is, do I really need a Savior? The impetus for answering rightly is an understanding and acceptance of his own need. And that's what we learn relative to James 4.6. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So again, on the coattails of this mini-series, God's love for orphans, there's a certain need that an orphan has. But what the Bible says is that orphan actually has to recognize the need and accept this invitation to be adopted. One of the greatest lies ever perpetrated amongst the so-called Christian churches in this world is that man is not born like an orphan in need of an adoptive father. It sounds crazy, but it happens. 
How many times have you heard an unbeliever say, I don't need a Savior? I've heard it. Oh, if you need a Savior, that's cool. I'm not going to ruffle your feathers. But I don't need a Savior. I'm good. I'm pretty self-sufficient. Isn't that their basic mantra? I don't need a Savior? Isn't that the fundamental problem of all problems with unbelievers? They don't actually believe they need a Savior. Because they're self-reliant, self-righteous. And you know what? I can say without a shadow of a doubt, God's never going to save that person. And I'm okay with it. It breaks my heart, but I'm okay with it. And I know that for a fact because God is opposed to the proud. And He only gives grace to the humble. And a humble person would never say, I don't need Jesus. I don't need a Savior. (laughs) So that's a great deception in this world that keeps individuals from humble repentance that precedes saving faith in Christ. If a person never perceives their own needs, their own depravity, their own inability to deliver themselves, they will never seek a Savior. For some reason, that one sentence I just read is... um, offensive to many so-called Christian churches nowadays. Let me read it again. It's, it's, hard to, it's hard to fathom, but it's the truth. It's offensive. <laughs> How do I know? Because I've been being attacked on it. Let me read it again. If a person never perceives their own needs, their own depravity, and their own inability to deliver themselves, they will never seek a Savior. I know for a fact that people can say a little prayer, say they believe in Jesus Christ, but are still unsaved. How do I know that? I'm not even, I know that the Bible says that. But I've had multiple individuals tell me, to my face, that's exactly what they did. And now they're saved. (laughs) That's exactly what they did. So I'm not speaking like, you know, out of the ether here. I'm just making stuff up. This is what happens. There are individuals out there that say they believe in Jesus Christ, but they don't. Not in the context that the Bible teaches. There's never been a a reconciliation of their own needs. They just hedge a bet. They say, oh, I can get something free by just saying I believe? Yeah. So this is what the Bible teaches us. So just so you know, I'm not here this morning to hijack that wonderful series titled God's Love for Orphans. May it never be. It was awesome. I love it, because it describes God's desire to adopt his creatures, to become his personal children in his family. That's wonderful. We should all know that. We should all embrace that and love it and be uh, ever grateful for it. 
But I am here to make a very subtle point that God especially cares for the needy, with the focus on the needy. I was thinking about that. We've we got to remember that there's no wasted space in the Bible. I mean, it's a perfectly orchestrated book. God is the most efficient literary author by an infinite margin. So in other words, whatever's in there, we should be able to just read it and trust in it. And when we read a truth, we should accept it. And if he says something really simple like, I'm opposed to the proud, but I give grace to the humble, and that's in the New Testament, and it arches all the way back to the Old Testament as a quote, as a reference, then we know that's a ubiquitous thing that we can just trust. We know that God doesn't pour out grace on everyone. But in, the, in light of humility, He will. And we know the reason behind it, because He loves us. And He wants us to be saved and to come to the full knowledge of Him. That's Holy Scripture. That's His baseline. We know that that impetus is there, but we also know that something can resist it. This is what we read in the Bible. And he, he makes no bones about it. Do you know what I mean? He's not interested. Our God is not a God of confusion. I would argue over and over again till the day I die that if you're still confused about certain, let's call them doctrines, certain thoughts, concepts in the Bible, it's not because God wasn't clear on it. It's because you probably picked up an errant lie somewhere. Often it's from a religion or some whatever. And I'm not even saying I've never lied to you inadvertently, because I probably have. I know I have. <laughs> because I don't know the whole Bible, which is why I tell you to have your own convictions. All I know is this, that God is the most efficient author by an infinite margin. Case in point. I just had to deal with some more contention and attacks this past week. Yeah. Who was on vacation? I was. About, you know, two-thirds of the way through. What do I get? <laughs> right? And I'm not blaming it. It's just the way it is. I, I've come to the conclusion that no matter... I could go bury my head in the sand in Aruba, and somehow something would slink into my ear, or something would bite me in the can... Or so, it, something would happen. So don't feel, I'm not like crying, like, oh, you know, ooh. don't worry about it. It just is what it is. That's just whatever. But nonetheless, I had to deal with something this past week. Contention, attacks, whatever you want to call it. And of course, it was regarding the same old issue of a watered-down gospel being held up as gracious when Holy Scripture states that such things are evil. We're not supposed to add or subtract, especially from the gospel, right? And if God says, I'm gracious in all aspects, including and especially with the gospel, then that's what I believe. In other words, every work that has to be done is by His grace. That's what I believe. 
And that's what I've taught you. And that's what I will continue to teach you. But not everybody teaches that. They only rob the word grace. As is often the case, the opposition started throwing out names of pastors and theologians and such. And at this juncture of my career, my response was very simple. Ready? And this is good wisdom for all of you. And the backdrop is that I've already had this conversation time and time again with this same group of people, so to speak. Here's my response. Read your Bible. Read your Bible and allow the Holy Spirit to guide you the way He has with me. Once I dropped all of my arrogant preconceptions about God and His salvation. That's my response now. If I've already had this discussion with you several times, and then you come back to me and say stupid stuff like, oh, so-and-so said, or so-and-so said, or so-and-so says, and you try to drum up some kind of like fiery ordeal, you know, to create division in the body. You try to do all, I'm, I'm just going to say, you just walk away now and go read your Bible. I'm going to pray for you, but you, my prayer for you is on the very strength of God to deliver you. I'm done contending with you, okay? In other words, while I am ready to give a defense, and I have on a multitude of occasions, while I'm ready to give a defense for what I believe, I'm done trying to do God's work in others who claim to have read the same Bible as I do. I'm not saying they haven't. If God hasn't convicted them or convinced them yet of this error, then why would I ever think I can? Honest to goodness. If I've already stated my case and used Holy Scripture, and I haven't been able to convince these individuals otherwise. I can't do God's work. The only thing I can do is hand it over to God. And just so you know, just so you know what kind of man I am, I, in my prayer for these people, I say the exact same prayer for myself. Lord, if I'm wrong, show me my way wrong. Show me that I'm wrong. And I'll adjust. And he doesn't, just so you know that I'm not that arrogant. This isn't about, I don't know, yet silliness of winning and losing the way a lawyer thinks. This isn't about any of that. This is about honesty and integrity to the perfect work of the Word of God. That's all I care about. Like I said, God is the most efficient literary offer by an infinite margin. The simple fact of the matter is that man is born so utterly depraved and needy that he must be 100%, not 99.9, 100% dependent on the holy God of the universe to pluck him out of his inherent despair. That is what I know to be true. It was true in the Old Testament, and it's true in the New Testament. That is what I know to be true. We have, no, we have no stake in this game. Remember? Dead on the ground. Get up. Try to animate a, a dead thing. It doesn't work. Roadkill. Remember that whole series? Roadkill. That's us before we're saved. Roadkill doesn't get up and do a dance. Doesn't do the salsa or the polka 
Oh, what, what do you do, Scott? Something from Jamaica. Right? Dead, dead things don't move. They don't animate. We have to made, be made completely brand new. Up here on the board, Romans 5, 6. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. While we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. I want to read an incredible passage. I don't even know how to, I said to myself, I don't know how you're going to use this in the lesson, God, but you want me to read this verse, you want me to read this chapter with my congregation, I'm going to read it. I don't even know exactly. I know at the tail end some highlights, but you want me to read this entire chapter with you. I want to read an incredible passage that I dedicate, and I'm not ashamed to say that, and I'm not being a wise guy, but I dedicate it to all those out there who attack godly men in ministries such as this one. Who poison them even. Proactively poison them. I dedicate this chapter to these individuals because very often, these in, I don't know what these individuals would do with a chapter like this, to be totally honest. Go to 1 John 3, verse 1. 1 John 3, verse 1. No idea what people do with entire chapters like this. Because honest to goodness, this is, this is almost a summary of what I've been teaching for four or five years now. I don't know why people have a problem with it. I didn't even, I'm not the originator of these thoughts. This is biblical. And this is perfect literary work. 1 John 3.1 See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us. Amen? Oh, it's incredible. Right? Unbelievable. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God? And such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what will be, what we will be, we know that when He appears, we will be like Him, because we will see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as He is pure. Everyone who practices, remember, anytime you see the word practice in this verse, in this passage, I want you to think by habit, by means of habit. Okay? doesn't mean perfection. It means by means of habit. Okay? Everyone who practices by means of habit, sin, also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins, okay, by practice, as a rule of thumb, as a rule of order, as a rule of dominion, do you understand? As a rule of slavery. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. What did we learn in Revelation about the great deceiver? He deceives the what? Whole world. Which means we are surrounded by this stuff by deception, the deceitfulness of sin manifest in the agencies of Satan himself. Make sure no one deceives you. This is like a big, big old flare across your bow, right? 
you're on a ship. It's like, make sure no one deceives you. Make sure your heading is correct. Make sure your course is set. Make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness, practices habitual righteousness, is what? Righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin, because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. In other words, sin is dead to this person. It doesn't mean he's not going to fail. It means their rule of life, their dominion, isn't sin anymore. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the evil one, and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil, and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. Again, world in view. Does that mean everybody in the world? Does that mean I hate you? No. No. Again, John 3.16, people. If the world hates you, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Yeah, John had no problem with litmus tests. Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. We will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our heart before him. In whatever our heart condemns us, for God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. This is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he commanded us. The one who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. We know by this that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. For the sake of continuity, I'm going to piggyback on the title of our previous slide up here on the board. Need must be recognized. The simple fact of the matter is that man is born so utterly depraved and needy that he must be 100% dependent on the holy God of the universe to pluck him out of his inherent despair. 100%. Again, the simple fact of the matter is that man is born so utterly depraved and needy that he must be 100% dependent on the holy God of the universe to pluck him out of his inherent despair. This is the very basis of grace. That is the very basis of grace. 
You have a need that you cannot meet on your own in no way, shape, or form. Let there be no bones about this. The only one that can solve the problem is God. And so by grace, He solves it. Now, we need not venture any further in our thoughts here. When the truth on the board is reconciled in the soul of a person, then God delivers him in a variety of ways by grace. Then God delivers him in a variety of ways by grace. And it's this grace that shines like a light on a hill, as the Bible describes it. It's this grace that bears the evidence of God's hand in salvation. It's this grace that reveals guaranteed fruit in the life of every adopted son and daughter in Christ Jesus. I have been told not so long ago by someone still clinging to a watered-down gospel that God can adopt someone into his family and that person will bear zero fruit. Yeah. So I have to ask, okay, you saw all the language that John just used? Pretty plain, right? Pretty straightforward. If you're righteous, you bear righteous fruit. If you're not, you don't. A tree bears fruit after its kind. It's not rocket science. What does a person do with 1 John 3 then? If you're clinging to a watered-down gospel, what do you do with 1 John 3? If you claim a person can be saved by the holy God of the universe, adopted into God's personal family, and yet bears zero fruit, what do you do with 1 John 3? I mean, was the apostle of love so old when he wrote this chapter in his epistle that in his senility he wrote errant doctrine? Is that what we're supposed to believe? I mean, I'm speaking silly, of course. The fact is that John specifically wrote about not being deceived by others. Go to verse 7 again. 1 John 3, 7. He specifically called this out. He was almost like saying, hey, listen, people, you ready? What I'm about to say is really important. In other words, like, if you're on the deck of the, the, the cruise ship or whatever, right, and you're, you know, gallivanting and dancing and doing stupid shit, and then, I almost said, right, stupid stuff. I said stuff, right? And all of a sudden, you're all on the deck, right, and this big orange glowing flare goes, whoosh, and it says, make sure no one deceives you. Don't you think you should kind of like, you know, snap out of it in that moment? Don't you think maybe someone is saying, hey, listen to what I'm about to, to say? Yeah, that's what, he's doing. that's what he's doing. Little children, verse 7, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is what? Righteous, just as he is righteous. Jesus is the one who said, you shall know them by their fruit. Pastor Ed didn't. 
Oh, by the way, the people that teach watered-down gospel, they also like to take, they want to tell you, you ready for this one? Take all of Jesus' words and throw them out because you're not one of his disciples. They're not for you. If there's one human being I ever want to sit on his lap and listen to, it's Jesus Christ. There's one person, not Paul, not John, as much as I respect these individuals, not David, one person. If there's one man I want to listen to, it's him. In order to make the watered-down gospel work, you have to take what Jesus said and misappropriate it for another, they call it a dispensation, let's say, another time. You think I'm crazy? This is the stuff I have to deal with on my vacations. It's incredible. What do you do with these these passages? I ask. Verse 8. Well, that's one strategy that Satan has used. Take Jesus' words and throw them in the garbage because they don't apply to you. Verse 8. The one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. In other words, saved people practice. Again, this is about habit. Saved people practice good things. Uh, Can we just all agree that that's the same thing as bearing good fruit? Can we just say that? I mean, if it's a good thing, right? That's not wood, hay, and straw. It's good stuff. You know what we call that? We call that fruit. (laughs) We call that fruit. By the grace of God, when we're saved, when we're brought into this family, when we're brought into this incredible family, we bear fruit. Imagine that. We actually are able to love the members of our family. Hmm. So, saved people practice good things. They bear good fruit. Therefore, if this is true, the Bible says it is, then do not be fearful. Do not be fearful of using the tools that you've been equipped with in order to judge righteously about the doctrine of salvation by grace. Don't be afraid of these people. Don't be afraid of people that are um, confused. Don't be. There's no reason to be afraid of anyone if you stand on the truth and you have true convictions, which is why I hope none of you do that thing, that ugly thing. When, when you get in maybe a little, when you get in a little grappling match with someone who disagrees, well, Pastor Ed says, or, or, or so-and-so, you know, some great, Spurgeon says, don't do that thing. Don't do that thing. Go to Scripture. And if you show them Scripture and they still don't get it, say, I'm going to pray for you, but you go read your own Bible. Because I can't change your mind, obviously. But don't be afraid. Pray for these people. Once saved, God's grace continues, even increases, as James wrote. He gives a greater grace, James 4, 6. This is what John wrote about here. Look at verse 10. John, 1 John 3, 10. You're still there, right? By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Obvious. Not, oh, whoa, maybe not. No, obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. 
So let's heed John's warning in verse 7. Make sure no one deceives us. You might say in retrospect, after 59 parts so far in this series titled The Deceitfulness of Sin, that 1 John 3 is one of the centerpieces on our dining room table. 59 parts. I would say that 1 John 3 literally is one of the centerpieces. If we're all gathered around as a family on this 59-course meal we've been enjoying for months, we're all around this table eating and eating and eating. One of the centerpieces is 1 John 3. There are absolute inescapable truths in 1 John 3. Up here on the board, a greater grace. There are inescapable truths in the Bible regarding God's grace. For starters, every aspect of conversion is furnished by God's grace and completed by God's power. You cannot repent without God because God's the one who grants it. God's the one who gives it. Now, what's a greater grace? If I tell you that's true, or if I tell you you've got to somehow do it on your own? I know which one's more gracious. The one who says God will do it. <laughs> I don't have the power to turn away from the power of sin on my own. Do you understand? That's what repentance means. I'm stuck there. I don't have the power to get up and walk on my own. So when he asked, do you want to get up and walk on your own and turn to my Lord, to me, my Savior that I've given you, and you say yes, he said, good, I'll pick you up. I'll turn you around. That's called repentance. I will pick you up and turn you around. That's what we call repentance. Because I can't do it. Can you? No. God has to do that thing. And you know what he says? I'll do it. We'll, we'll, we'll add that to a greater grace. You might be shocked how many people have a problem with that. It's incredible. Satan has done a masterful job. There are inescapable truths in the Bible regarding God's grace. For starters, every aspect of conversion is furnished by God's grace and completed by God's power. This greater grace that James refers to includes repentance, saving faith, and any evidence thereof. Man cannot produce any of it. Didn't we not just read in 1 John 3 the evidence? If you're righteous, then you're righteous. If you're not, then you're not. If you're saved, then you bear fruit. Okay, I'm good with that. So you're going to adopt me into your family. You're going to completely change me. It makes total sense. And there's complete continuity with the Bible that I'm going to bear fruit. Otherwise, maybe you didn't change me. And God's a liar. And I'm still stuck in my sin. Or he said, I'll do this judicious thing in the middle. I'll give you justification by faith. And the other two things, I'm going to make you do on your own. That's not great. That's a lesser grace. Do you see it? 
that's a lesser grace. That theology even, that mindset, is actually a lesser grace. Don't just believe somebody because they say they're grace-oriented, or they, they understand grace to a higher degree than you do. Chances are they don't. Chances are they've robbed it, like I just described. To say that repentance is a work of man is to say it isn't a work of God, right? That's what people proclaim. To say that bearing fruit after you're saved is a work of man says it's not a work of God, right? This is what these people claim. I'm going to go out on a limb and say, including all of it is a greater grace, amen? There you go. I'd rather be wholly dependent on God's grace than partially pointing fingers at other people and poisoning ministries. All I know is man cannot produce any of it, and that's by definition what grace is. Let me give you this practical bent now up here on the board. A lesser grace. A person who says, I don't need this or that part of God's grace does not yet recognize their need. In their arrogance, their only option is to assume the work of man, which is antithetical to grace. All conditions for salvation must be met by God. All conditions for salvation must be met by God. Again, I echo John's warning in verse 7. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. Our adoptive Father in heaven would never... Now, I'm going to be closing here in a moment. Our adoptive Father in heaven would never leave His own children emaciated fools. Never! Let me say it again. Our adopted Father in heaven would never leave his own children emaciated fools. And yet, this is precisely what some teach, that God will save you, but leave you to starve on the side of the road. You see, once you hand the reins over to mankind to feed and care for himself, he starves. To the contrary... As Holy Scripture describes it, we are all well-fed, well-clothed, and well-cared for. Go to John 6.35, and I'll pick a spot here. We might go back to First John in a moment, but John 6.35. To say otherwise is to suppose that God is somehow impotent powerless to complete what he started. (laughs) John 6.35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. God's not interested in leaving us emaciated fools. If there's one truth that the Lord God desires that we believers know and understand, it's that He loves us. Just let that sink in. That He loves us. 
If we understand this love, we bear the inevitable fruit of it in our own hearts and souls, just as we read. Now go back to 1 John 3.18. should have told you to hold your thumb, but good exercise, right? 1 John 3.18. Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. We will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our heart before him. And whatever our heart condemns us, for God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sights. Do you understand that a believer keeps his commandments? Do you understand that that is fruit? <laughs> that that's all the new creature wants to do, and that of it itself is fruit? How the hell do you say there's zero fruit after salvation as a potential outcome of being saved? How do you say there's no evidence? <laughs> when God says, Read, where do you put James 2? Show me your faith without the works, I'll show you my faith by my works. Where the heck do you put that then? There are entire chapters in Holy Scripture that you have to abandon. This is His commandment, verse 23, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He commanded us. The one who keeps His commandments abides in Him, and He in Him. We know by this that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. So here's a slide from part 58. I'm just trying to connect before we depart for this morning. This was before I went on vacation. Up here on the board, John 15:4 says, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. John 15:10 reads, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. You remember the two hooks? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Remember that? Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. The recurring theme has been this. There is some roadblock. I know where it is. It's for you to figure out with your family and your friends, individuals who still are stuck. Because listen to this. As soon as, as soon as you postulate wrongly, but postulate nonetheless, that you can be saved and bear zero fruit, that you can be saved and that there's absolutely no evidence to point to your salvation, you know what you can do with obedience? You can throw it out the window. There's no more accountability to God at that point, is there? Because maybe you will, and maybe you won't. Maybe you'll put on that work of man and do it, or maybe you won't. Or, maybe, just maybe, God's not a liar, and He says, I will complete a good thing I started in you, you can bet on it. That a tree bears fruit after its own kind. That righteous people perform righteous deeds that you will be convicted by my Holy Spirit Himself in your own soul as a saved person, that you are bearing good fruit 
to my glory. Because when you do it, that also brings glory to me because all the angels are rubbernecking. Remember, this is all about bringing glory to God. But somehow obedience has become a dirty word. Obedience has somehow been labeled as a work of man. It's unbelievable. If you just think through what is being supposed out there in Christian churches nowadays, it is an abomination. An abomination to God. And they call it grace. And they say this teaching right here is anti-grace. Somehow, somehow, somehow I'm the idiot teaching away from grace. You know what you can do with obedience when you hack it off the end of salvation? Whatever you want, I guess. Maybe you will, maybe you won't. So what you have is most Christians are terribly deceived about obedience. And here was, you know, one of the so-called aha moments before I left on vacation up here on the board. Losing the adolescent perspective. God desires us to obey Him for our sakes so that we might enjoy His peace, His joy, and life eternal in time. And you know what? Up here on the board, sin lies to us. Broken promises. Hebrews 12, 30, uh, 25b, the, in the New American, the passing pleasures of sin, and the amplified, the fleeting enjoyment of a sinful life, the new living, the fleeting pleasures of sin. Sin lies to us about all of this garbage. Humble submission to the will of God, a.k.a. obedience, results in godly fruit, starting with life eternal, peace, joy, and love experientially. One more verse. Go quickly to John 15, 11, and then I will close. Just trying to get us back reconnected with our series. John 15, verse 11. I mean, all of this has purpose. There's a reason for 59 parts on the deceitfulness of sin. There's a reason for this morning's message. There was a reason for last week's uh, a special series on, on uh, God loves uh, orphans, God's love for orphans. This is all comes together. John 15, 11, These things I have spoken to you so that... Do you understand Jesus loves you? Do you understand that? Like, really? Does He want you to think that you'll never bear any fruit? Does he want you to believe that garbage? Does he want you to believe that there's no assurance of your salvation? That you could wander around an emaciated soul? Supposedly with, supposedly with a claim to heaven? Does that sound like a loving God who goes out of his way by grace to adopt you into his family? Okay, you're here, but go sit in the closet. And I'll pick you up when it's time to take a trip to heaven. Go starve in a closet. Does that sound like our loving God? No way. Not my God. Not the one from the Bible. Not the one who rescued me when I was hopeless and helpless. Why would he go through all that work and then say, you're on your own? Tell me, let me ask you one thing. I know I'm going on a little bit. Some of you are like, you promised. Too bad. Aren't you encouraged 
when you see fruit in your own life? Some of you are like, oh, yeah. Because some of that stuff did not exist. It was antithetical even. And it's only, if you're honest, you know that it's only by the grace of God, as Paul would say, I am what I am by what? The grace of God. It's only by the grace of God that you are anything that can bring even one iota of glory to God. And since angels can't see inside that puny head of yours, you know what comes out? Fruit. You, they will know that you're my disciples because you have what for one another? Love. Some of you are like, yeah, you know, I was a nasty. I didn't love anyone. But now you do. Now you have a little bit of Christ's love in you. And you know what? John 15, 11. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. That sounds like an adoptive father. That sounds like someone who came down to seek and to save the lost. That sounds like someone that loves us. Doesn't it? How dare we rob any of God's glory by perverting His love or His grace. Do not be deceived and do not be fearful. Pray for those that are still lost on these subjects. Pray for your enemies. But be confident, at least, in what he's doing in you. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this wonderful privilege of studying your word here on this fine morning that you set aside to give us truth, truth that sets us free. Father, thank you for loving us. We know that we love because you first loved us. Thank you for example. Thank you for all that you've done in our lives, Father. And thank you for the ability to just bring glory to you. We just ask for your blessings and that we bring what we've learned out to a lost and dying world back to our own homes. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen.